So the Disney movie, one of, my, one of the Disney movies I really enjoy is a movie called Zootopia. And there's this brilliant scene where the two main characters, so you have the, the, the rabbit who is a police officer named Judy Hopps uh, and the wily fox named Nick Wilde. And they both go to the DMV together because Nick's got a friend there. And wouldn't you know it, every window there is run by sloths. You, you, you watch, you know, in, in the film, there's kind of these passing glances as the different characters are like interacting with these sloths, these sloths and there's just frustration of the speed of, the ser- of their service. And it's very cathartic, right? Because I'm sure many of us have had experiences with very, very long wait times in the DMV. But Judy introduces, or excuse me, Nick introduces Judy to his friend, ironically named Flash, for a sloth, because they're trying to run a license plate to figure out where it came from. And Flash is just like moving at the speed of molasses, and Judy is like this bunny, this rabbit is just rearing to go. And just as he's about to enter the last digit of the license plate, Nick, trying to get under Judy's skin, uh, was like, hey, Flash, let me tell you a joke. And it just derails the whole process. And the whole scene, I mean, they don't even finish the scene, like the joke, because it's like painful enough as an observer to, to witness, because watching this sloth move, especially in our kind of high-functioning, fast-paced society, is like a form of torture, because it's just not getting anywhere. Now, this, this sloth, right, the sloth, the animal of the sloth, received its name in the 17th century. And it's actually named, because of its slow movement, it's named after the sin or the vice that we're going to study this morning. The, the vice was actually named in the 15th century. It's an old English word that comes, it, 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 it's pronounced sloweth. I don't know why they added uh, THs to the end of all their words, but they did. But that's where sloweth, sloth, comes from. And so the vice of sloth, like the animal, has come to describe a person who is lazy or slow-moving, like Flash from Zootopia. We might imagine the slothful person sitting at their couch late into the night, just binge-watching Netflix or Amazon Prime or Hulu or whatever it is that you watch, right? just letting episode after episode play without moving. In the Bible, Proverbs, the book of Proverbs, describes a sluggard, which is kind of similar in this way. This is Proverbs 16, excuse me, Proverbs 26, verses 14 through 15. As a door turns on its hinges, so does a sluggard on his bed. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish and it wears him out to bring it back to his mouth. What evocative images, right? A person just rolling over, flipping back and forth on their bed, but never rising. Or the person who starts to eat but loses the motivation to finish that act of feeding yourself. Now, when we talk about a sin or a vice of sloth, I think these are the type of images that often come to mind when we consider it. That it describes laziness, that it describes a failure to move. And and for sure, there is a, a nugget of truth in those caricatures. But sloth is more than just inactivity. Sloth is not the same thing as taking a bodily rest or a Sabbath, if you will. Our culture works at breakneck speed. 
frankly, if we decided to slow down a little bit, we'd probably a bit, be a bit happier. Now, the great misconception about sloth is that it is the opposite of diligence. Right? We, we've talked how all of these vices have a corresponding virtue. And a lot of times, and, and there are some traditions that pose diligence as the remedy for sloth. But I think that this is in error for two reasons, or it comes from two different places. One in the history of the church and one outside of the church. Right? Sloth is considered a sin in both settings, kind of as this opposite of diligence, but, I, but for different reasons. Now, about a month ago, I spoke on something that was called the Protestant work ethic. Right? This framework of productivity arose out of the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation, and it has shaped our country's economic system of capitalism. Right? The Protestant work ethic basically puts forward that if you hold to a certain set of doctrines which are closely aligned with Protestantism or Calvinism, a reformed worldview is another way that it's described, the result of that is that you work really hard for God. You are productive for God. Now, as a result, if you aren't being productive, kind of under this framework, under this mindset, then you're, you're in essence thumbing your nose at God. You're not living the way that he wants you to live. Now, God did command Adam and Eve in the garden to fill it and subdue it. Adam and Eve and their descendants were tasked with the creation and cultivation of culture. God blessed work, like work was something good. It's not a necessary evil. That's often how we think about it today. I just work Monday through Friday, work for the weekend. Now, God said that work is good, but in that process, God never gave any milestones or goals for them to hit in the process. Right? God highlights the goodness of work in the creation, and as a result of that, we ought to work in faithfulness, but the Protestant work ethic can, can be taken to an extreme and miss the dangers of workaholism, right, being a workaholic, working too much. Let me give you an example, and this is in the church. About six years ago, before coming to work here, I was leaving campus ministry, and I was looking for a church to do more traditional pastoral work. And there was this church in Texas that I had applied to. It was in the EPC, the Evangelical Presbyterian Church. And I'd had my first round of interviews, had passed through that, and was still in their process. And uh, it, it was February, and by chance, I ran into one of the elders of the church who was also on the search committee uh, at a conference that we were both attending here in Pittsburgh. And this is how he described what they were looking for in the position. He said, and I, I quote, I mean, it's a little bit of a paraphrase, but you'll get the general idea. He said, we have some older staff who have been with us a really long time and have worked tirelessly, tirelessly for this church, and they're now stepping back. What we're looking for is someone to bring some youthful energy and to ride him hard. Those last words were his exact words, ride him hard. Now, needless to say, the very next day, I contacted them and withdrew my name from the process because those, like that attitude of, uh, we're just going to milk someone for everything that they are worth, does not create boundaries for a healthy work-rest balance. And I think that is this, this kind of the result of this Protestant work ethic that puts such a high value on productivity that we struggle to cease activity. Because if we're ceasing in our activity, we're somehow failing in our calling that God has put before us. 
But laziness and idleness are also sins to secularism, to the broader world. And and I would say that is probably adapted from the Protestant work ethic that I shared a moment ago, right? Because there is a Judeo-Christian ethic that is the kind of the background of our nation. But in a secular worldview, sloth is the opposite of diligence and industry. As a result, it is a sin not against God, but against time. It's a failure to live up to our full potential. I mean, think about, so I I have friends who have done work with um, nuclear power plants or coal power plants, right? One one is someone who I knew from this church and one was a neighbor who used to live um, down the street from me. And they would go and they would do maintenance on these power plants during outages. And they were always in the spring and the fall, right, because that was the the lowest need for energy consumption because it wasn't winter for heat or summer for cool. And every day that those plants were closed, like they had to be productive. They were working like 16-hour days because every day those power plants were closed, those power plants were losing like a million dollars in revenue. So any, any place where they were, you know, slowing down, making sure they weren't cutting corners. Those things were seen as threats to their bottom line. And, and so again, as our culture, we see that the, anything that might slow things down is viewed as a sin. Right? The common moral value is that if we are not producing something, then we're a drain on society. Now, in both those cases, those who are workaholics, those who are productive, who are keeping themselves busy. They might acknowledge, you know what, I've got some problems, but at least I know that sloth or laziness is not one of them. But according to Catholic philosopher Joseph Piper, he argues that busyness and workaholism are actually the classic symptoms of sloth. Now that seems to me, when I first read that, I was like, that seems really counterintuitive. How can we possibly group those with, uh, group those who overwork, right, who are putting in 80 hours a week with those who are like sleeping to 2 p.m. every day, not getting out of their bed. But it's because we have a misconception of what sloth actually is. Now, in the original list of the deadly sins, this was not called sloth, but was instead called by a Greek word, asadia. And asadia literally means without care. It defines a person who lacks care, a.k.a. a lack of love. Asadia has more to do with a laziness in love than it does a laziness in work. Now, there are plenty of places, plenty of situations where that laziness in love spills over into a lack of motivation to do meaningful work, right? That, there, that might be a consequence, but that's not its root. What we would normally think of as sloth are external examples, but of something else deeper going on, an inner condition. The Desert Fathers called this vice the noonday demon. They used the example of Psalm 90, verse 6. It's a little bit of proof texting, but we'll, we'll allow it. And in that passage, the, the psalmist is talking about a, a field of grass that is renewed. And it it says in verse 6, in the morning it flourishes and is renewed, in the evening it fades and withers. And so they took this passage to describe what they were seeing in their monastic communities, 
right, where men and women struggled with the afternoon hours of restlessness and idleness, of failure to fulfill their duties. Right? They started the day off strong, but they couldn't finish the job. We might think about this like the post-lunch crash that you experience at work, right? The very hangover that five-hour energy is trying to save us from, to keep us going, to keep us productive in those afternoon hours. But remember, we can be super productive, but that's not going to escape us or save us from sloth. Evagrius was one of those de desert fathers, and he's the first person who compiled this, these list of, of vices. There are eight. I don't know why they went from eight to seven, but anyway... Uh, but he described asadia as an inner resistance and a coldness towards our spiritual calling and practices. It's when we struggle to stay connected to God or when we view our relationship with God as an intolerable burden. We might experience this. And this is where I think, for me, the rubber really starts hitting the road about sloth. Because we might experience this in a drudgery of our daily disciplines, like reading our Bible, like spending time in prayer. Right, the most obvious example of sloth is when we feel the fire go out in our relationship with God. When we resist that daily effort to connect to God, whether, we're not, whether or not we're feeling particularly motivated or inspired in the moment. Think about the great sin of David against Bathsheba. This is, I think it's 2 Samuel 11 and 12. Now, many would argue that it was lust that caused David to commit infidelity with her. And there's lust that is present. But the scriptures, I think, are clear in their depiction of that story. Lust was only given a window because of David's sloth. He should never have been on the roof of his palace sunbathing that afternoon. It was sloth that caused him to call in a sick day when he should have been at war with his soldiers. He failed to follow in his calling as a leader, and he failed to root himself in the holiness of God. And it gave the enemy a foothold. Right? We have that saying in our culture, idle hands are the devil's playground. Because sloth keeps us in the now and resists the not yet. It wants to receive God's unconditional love here and now, but it, it wants to receive it without having to put in any effort or to require us to change in any way that might cost us something. Sloth would allow us to, to be content staying stagnant when we're halfway on the journey. But God is not satisfied with our now. He wants to see us change. He wants to see us grow into people that love and reflect the integrity of Jesus Christ. Something, kind of one of those uh, uh, anecdotes, I don't know, one of those sayings that we have here as a church is that God loves us as we are, but he loves us too much to let us stay that way. Put another way, God loves us the way that we are, that he doesn't require us to clean ourselves up before he pours his affection onto us. He meets us where we are, right here, right now, presently, in all of its brokenness and all of its chaos. But he also has a vision for us greater than we have for ourselves. He's not content to allow us to wallow in our sins. He wants to draw us out, to transform us from the inside out. 
to not, we're not a finished product, and he's not willing to let us sit until we're done, until he's completed that good work in us. Now, all of what I've shared to this point in time, I think, is a good example of sloth of how we would typically characterize it, right? A failure to act, because that is one component of it, the result of not being diligent. But sloth can also manifest itself as profound zeal, excitement over petty things, over trivial matters. Right? Take the movie Groundhog Day. Bill Murray's character, Phil, is a reporter. He's going to cover you know, the event of Groundhog Day in Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania. You know, the, the groundhog predicts, predicts six more weeks of winter, and Phil finds himself reliving the same day over and over and over again. It's a classic. Phil is a selfish, immoral individual, and in the beginning of the movie, he flits from one thing to another for his own benefit. Through trial and error, he is attempting to manipulate and seduce his co-worker, Rita, Rita, he shows like a boredom and apathy. There's a scene where he's sitting in the, the, the living room of the bed and breakfast that he's staying in, eating popcorn, and he's answering every single question correctly on uh, Jeopardy, but with lackluster energy. Right? He succumbs to despair, trying to, to commit suicide, to end this repetitive nightmare, but he wakes up every morning on February 2nd yet again, Phil is stuffing his time with garbage. But then there's this switch that takes place in him. Later in the movie, he begins on this path towards self-improvement. He starts to use his time in things that are more meaningful. Learning to play the piano. He starts going out of his way to save as many lives as he can. He kind of flits from one place to the next, but with the intention of, of, all right, I'm on a schedule. I got to go save this person and then save this person and save this person. Right? He, he begins to change to the point that Rita starts to fall from, for him, not out of manipulation, but because there's transformation in his life. Phil redirects his energies from the things that are fleeting to those that have a greater impact on himself and those around him. Put bluntly, Phil begins to care for himself and begins to care for others. Now, of course, the, the, the example falls short because the gospel tells us that we aren't ultimately going to change through self-improvement. Our transformation takes place because God's Holy Spirit takes root in our lives and, and, and works that. We, we give him permission, we create space for that, but we aren't the ones that change ourselves. But the example of the movie still fits because we can be so stuck in a place of distractions that we avoid allowing God to work on us. We avoid putting effort into meaningful things. Right, sloth allows a busyness or a workaholic mindset to be a distraction to the true condition that is present in our hearts. Right, that, that's, what, that's what Joseph Piper was saying, that busyness and workaholism are the classic examples of sloth because it's us filling our time with all kinds of garbage, or maybe it's decent stuff, it's not like immoral things, but filling them with distractions to keep us in silence of acknowledging that there's brokenness and that God wants to do something through us. Rebecca DeYoung in her book, Glittering Vices, shares another metaphor of sloth by describing the relationship between a husband and a wife. 
She says that the man and the woman love each other deeply, but there's a conflict at dinner, and each goes to their separate corners for the rest of the night. And they stay in those places because they find it easier to maintain the distance from one another, even in their misery. It's easier to do that than it is to do the hard work of apologizing, forgiving, and reconciling. The very things that would reconnect them, like saying, I'm sorry, take effort. Sometimes it's easier to just stop trying, to sweep it under the rug and to move on. There are plenty of marriages that are like that, and that describes acedia, a lack of love that keeps them stuck and emotionally distant from one another. Neither is willing to do the difficult work of moving towards each other. But sometimes to kind of keep that, ex- that example going, sometimes the things that keep the man and woman from giving one another time and focus aren't even activities that are that taxing. It can be difficult to apologize, to be vulnerable. Right? But maybe instead, they're just scrolling Facebook. They don't even look up when their spouse comes through the door after, wa- after work. Instead of being all in from one another, they've settled for a marriage that they can coast in. Right? But one that is sapped from the joy and affection and intimacy. Mathematician Blaise Pascal, he's the guy that invented the calculator, said that the way to make people miserable is to take away all their diversions. That's how you make people miserable. This is, this is said some, what I say next is a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but, you know, you could put it to the test today if you want. If you have a roommate or a spouse or a child, when they're not looking, take away their phone, their tablet, right? Whatever electronic device they find themselves gravitating to, when they're not looking, and hide it somewhere. Don't tell them where you put it. Put it somewhere that they never think to look. And see how kind of the misery reflects itself through the day. They will probably spend so much time searching for it. Instead of finding an alternative activity to keep them going, maybe something that is a bit more constructive than that glowing rectangle, there's going to be some panic. They're going to just try to find that missing technology. Pascal would say that we find any excuse we can muster to not pay attention to God. And our smartphones, I think, are, gosh, I get blanking on his name, John Mark Comer. He's a pastor out in Washington. He said, I thought this was so profound. He said, the greatest threat to the church of Jesus Christ in our day and age is not rampant secularism. It's not all of them outside of the church that are attacking us in the church. He said the greatest threat to the church of Jesus Christ is that smartphone that you have in your wallet. And I think he's onto something with it because that smartphone allows us to fill our time with stuff that's meaningless. And in that meaningless, we miss God. Is it any wonder that our faith feels anemic Try this one on for size. Take it with a grain of salt. But one author suggested that what people call doubt is actually just another manifestation of sloth. Because we want a faith that is easy. We want a faith that we don't have to sacrifice too much or we don't have to put in too much effort. But faith requires active response. It requires active engagement with God. And oftentimes, this might not always be the case, but doubt is often the result of us pers- our pursuing our pursuit of God grinding to a halt. That's often when doubt creeps in. All right, let me try to summarize here. 
sloth or acedia is fundamentally a lack of care. And it manifests itself in our lives in two primary ways. We talked about this with anger, right? Because a little anger can be a good thing, but you have the extremes, too much anger and too little anger. Too much anger is wrath, too little anger is apathy, where you don't care about anything. In the same way, when it came, comes to sloth, you kind of have, sloth is in the middle. It's not that there's an opposite that you, you're pursuing, but the extremes are the problems. So the first is uh, that typical caricature of sloth, despairing resignation, what looks like apathy, a false rest, right? The slugger that doesn't even have the motivation to feed themselves. I, I don't know. I mean, this might look like the person who was in their 20s, but they're still living in their parents' house playing video games till 2 a.m. But sloth also, on the other extreme, manifests in our lives through escapism, finding anything to distract us, right? An, an avoidance of the inner condition of our soul, a restlessness where we feel unsatisfied, but we refuse because it's hard to go to the one place where we can experience the satisfaction of God. Right? This might be like the person who works 80 hours a week and is really productive, but remains emotionally distant from their family. In fact, maybe work is an escape from not having, you know, escape from family so that they don't have to give the energy to be present with them, right? This is the manifestation where we would rather spend hours on Twitter, hours reading the New York Times, browsing Amazon, but we're unwilling to take 15 minutes out of our day to spend time with God in the scriptures and prayer. Sloth I would argue, of all the deadly sins, this is the one that I think permeates all of our lives in some way because it's a slog, right? Jesus said that the path to destruction was wide, but the path towards righteousness was narrow. I know I've shared this example before. I don't think those are two different paths. They're the same path. When you're going with the status quo, that's the wide path, but if you turn around and start trying to walk the path of God, it's hard because those people aren't moving out of your way. You've got to like bob and weave. It's a hard path. And so we often don't want to put the time into it. So what is the remedy? How do we minimize this in our lives? And like I said, some traditions place diligence as the opposite of sloth, but I think those, those traditions are falling into the same pragmatic approach that I shared at the beginning. Because there are so many times that it is important to rest and recuperate. Right? Sabbath, taking one day a week to be off. Again, not just to fill with fleeting things, but to, to fill with joy, feasting, and God. Right? But it might mean that you are not diligent at all. When you were, if you were an ancient Israelite, you were not allowed to do any work on the Sabbath. Many of us put our identity in things that we do, and so we find it difficult to rest. We would be spiritually healthier if we stopped our frenetic movement, if we stopped, if we stopped being diligent for a time. I'm reading a book by John Ortberg called Soul Keeping. Subtitle is Caring for the Most, Mo Caring for the most Important Part of You. And Ortberg was mentored by a spiritual giant, Dallas Willard. I've quoted him a number of times in this series. One day, Ortberg was on the phone with, with Willard, and asked him, what do I need to do in order to be spiritually healthy? And there's a long pause on the phone. And after, 
Afterwards, Willard replied, you must, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. And Orberg jotted it down. He's like, all right, I got it. What other nuggets do you have for me? And Willard responded, there is nothing else. Hurry is the great enemy of the spiritual life in our day. You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. Now, as someone who is a type A personality, Willard's words feel like a salve to my soul. I don't believe that diligence is the answer to sloth. I'm more inclined to agree with those who label the antidote to sloth as perseverance, as faithfulness. David says this in Psalm 27, verse 14. He says, wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. It's less about the pace of our activities and more to do with the focus of our heart. The final book that Eugene Peterson wrote before he died was called A Long Obedience in the Same Direction. And if I had to give a concise antidote to sloth, that would be it. A long obedience in the same direction. Staying connected and focused on God, slowly moving towards Him through the entirety of our lives. Asadia wants to give up the fight. Sloth is content with our progress right now. Remember, sloth wants to hang on hang out here in the now and ignore the not yet, what God still has to do. But God says that he wants more, and we need to stay. We need to be rooted. I think the best of all the Psalms is the very first one, Psalm 1. Psalm 1, 1 to 3 says, Blessed is the man or woman who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the seat of sinners, stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers. But his or her delight is in the law of the Lord. And on that law, he or she meditates day and night. He or she is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in season, and its leaf does not wither. And all that he or she does, they prosper. That speaks of productivity. Leaf that doesn't wither. Fruit that is produced in season. But it's not about the tree manufacturing the fruit. It's about being rooted to the stream of living water, which is God and his law. Right, the psalm continues by contrasting that with the wicked, who are like, the, the, word, the Bible word they use is chaff, I'll translate that as like dust bunnies. They're blown, they're tossed around. They are the precise opposite of a deeply rooted tree. And oftentimes the psalm is interpreted to describe how the, the wicked are easily led astray, that they, because they're not rooted by, to God, they're susceptible to you know, any wily framework. But given what we spoke about this morning, I think the, the fact that they, they have this lack of being embedded to God reveals how easy it is to be driven from distraction to distraction to distraction to our ultimate detriment. So what ought this look like practically for us? Right, if acedia is literally translated to lack of love, then the remedy for us lies in the perseverance of our love to God. 
as a culture, the thing that we get wrong about love is that we often consider it in the realm of the emotion. Surely, there are emotional components of love. But again, let's go back to a marriage relationship. There are days that I feel the emotional connection and love for my wife. But there are days when Sarah and I get angry at each other. Days where I might be in a bitter mood, like yesterday. And I don't always possess those same emotional feelings of being in love with Sarah. But a marriage commitment means that I am still called to love her, to stay faithful to her, regardless of how I feel in the moment. Love is just as much an act of the will, making a decision to continue to love my spouse, even when I can't ride on the coattails of the feelings. This is what love should look like when we direct it towards God. It's an act of the will. We don't just love God when we feel his presence or, you know, we feel the overwhelming emotions of his sacrifice for us. We continue to love him even when it feels like a chore. It means that we accept God's unconditional love for us, but we make a conscious decision to acknowledge that there is a cost for me to love him back. I might have to make changes to my life that are uncomfortable. Whether we feel like it or not, we continue to hold fast to the disciplines of study and prayer. We continue to be in a, present in a community that is the bride of Jesus Christ. We continue to hold fast to our commitment that we made to God in light of his remarkable commitment to us. Right, this is what we say, fake it till you make it. That's basically what I'm telling you to do. Stick with it. Because just like in a marriage relationship, even if there are times when those emotions feel like they wane, studies have said that a number of couples, the 60% of couples who were considering divorce and were unsatisfied in their marriage, five years later, if they stuck with it, 60% responded that they were significantly more satisfied and emotionally connected in their marriages. It's fake it till you make it. And that's, that's what I'm encouraging us to do in our relationship with God, to stick it out with him. Because perseverance is not easy. There are days that we're going to want to throw in the towel because faith is hard. There are going to be days that we struggle with doubt. I always, in those seasons, go back to the words of Peter in John chapter 6 to stay connected to him. Right in the context of John chapter 6, there were, Jesus gave some hard teaching and someone he's talking about, like, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you can't have any part of my kingdom. And people were like, what is this? This is crazy. And so folks started to leave. It was like the, the worst, if you're going by productivity measures, he went from a mega church to just 12 of them. He's going in the wrong direction in our church growth movement. When Jesus asked his 12 disciples if they were going to leave too, Peter replied, speaking for the group, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. He says, where else can we go? Perseverance means that we stick it out, even if the emotions wane, because we know that there is only one true path to transformation and sanctification, and that is Jesus Christ. Sloth is one of those vices that is so easy to miss in our lives because we, we're filling our, our lives. We're keeping ourselves distracted so we can avoid its presence. So I got some reflection questions. I'd encourage you to, to 
Think through them this week. I'll post them on Facebook tomorrow as well. First is inventorying. What acts of love in your daily life feel like a burden right now? What are those acts of love that it, it's got to be by will, not the emotion? Second, and this is the big one, I think, for me and probably many of us. What are the top two to three distractions that you default to when you have downtime? Could be your smartphone. Could be Netflix. Could be online shopping. Could be going for runs. Again, none of those things are inherently bad. But if we're filling our time with these distractions in order to prevent that need to go to God, it's a a lack of priorities. Lastly, how will you intentionally nurture your relationship of love with God? Maybe you're feeling it right now and perseverance seems easy, and that's great. But if you're going through a hard season, if you're struggling with doubt, what's something tangible, specific, that you're going to do to intentionally nurture your relationship of love with the Lord? Join me in prayer. Lord, open our eyes to the truth of sloth, that it's just not a failure to be productive. Bring conviction to our hearts of the places in which we are really productive, but perhaps productive for the wrong things. Lord, so much of this is difficult for us to cultivate in ourselves, and so we ask for your help, we ask for your assistance, that your Holy Spirit might fill our hearts, fill our souls, that you would cultivate in us a heart to know you more fully. Lord, light that fire in our hearts again for you, that we might join with peoples from every tribe, tongue, and nation, Lord, that we would join with all of creation in singing your praise and glory. In Jesus' name, amen.